0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: President Donald Trump is looking dazed, confused and dangerous. Hyperactive Japanese tech titan SoftBank is getting... Not much love from its investors, and Italy's bad boy Silvio Berlusconi may have tricked Chinese buyers into scoring an M&A own goal. These are the topics we'll be digging into on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking news columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and I'm here with my colleague Jennifer Sabre. Hi, Jen.
2: Hello. All right, let's start off talking about U.S. President Donald Trump, who this week, for the first time, addressed members of Congress and offered, you know, Breadcrumbs as to what his spending is going to be with healthcare and tax reform, the defense budget. Anthony, you've been following this. What details emerged, if any, from his address to Congress? Well,
1: really, not many. I mean, you say breadcrumbs. I would, I would say it's probably not even that. Although I'm sure that certain Republicans will pick it up and say this is a start. Um, his speech to Congress on Tuesday night was—it's par of the course. I mean, it was billed as being a way of him to try and reset his his presidency. You know, thirty. Four days in, or whatever it is,
2: right? And it was—it was much more conciliatory, and non- yeah, it was ads. meant
1: to be. Although you know, there, were, there were times in there where you know he's talking about building the Great Wall along the border with Mexico, uh, even though you've got a bunch of people, including Republicans in Texas, of all places, saying we don't need a wall, uh, and you think Texans would know uh, since they're right exactly. on the border. Exactly. Um, yes, being one yourself, <laughs> being,
2: being a Texan myself. Um, but also,
1: people were looking here for, for you know, on the conciliatory side, look, he's been saying a lot of things and doing a lot of things against. Immigrants, illegal immigrants, foreigners... <laughs> people from mostly Muslim countries.
2: That's right. He's even planning to set up a special office in Homeland Security where people who feel as if though there is a crime committed against them and that that person was an illegal immigrant, they could report it to this office.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I think he spoke in, the, spoke in the speech of wanting to make sure there's not an environment of lawless chaos. I mean, this just goes back to everything he's been saying to try and stir up the nation against foreigners, stir them up against what has happened under the previous administration and trying and basically to just say the place is a mess and I'm the only person who can fix it which clearly is rubbish no one person can fix uh, a big mess and in fact the place is nowhere near as big a mess as he thinks it is right but it all plays into the themes he's coming up with where he continually wraps himself in the flag to try and get contentious looking policies to be look acceptable so think back earlier this week where a member of, of the White House, a budget team, said, "Look, we're going to try and give 54 billion extra to the Department of Defense. We need to spend more on uh, on our military, get more people in, have better uh, have better weapons, got to upgrade them. Trump has already talked about having, you know, the greatest military build-up in peacetime history. These are not great things to say, right? On the one hand, it makes it seem as if." The military is a mess. And you don't really want to say that to your military, especially when they are engaged on various fronts around the world and doing a relatively decent job, right? I mean, you know, no military is fantastic. Um, it's sad to have to use them. But, you know, they, they do a pretty good job, and they have very good weapons compared to the rest of the world, some of which need upgrading fine.
2: Well, wait, wait let, let's stop here for a second, because as, as you said in your column, it accounts for, what, half of, of the budget?
1: Well, it accounts just over half of the discretionary budget. Okay, we've also got the mandatory budget, which includes you know, um, health Sort of Medicaid right. Owned, but but
2: owned, the point those, is, like, saying. it is a department typically rife with overspending.
1: Exactly. The GAO, the Government Accountability Office, has had it on its high risk list since 1995, for poor processes, business processes, accounting, everything. So
2: a systemic problem for, yeah. and for it, decades.
1: It's, it's already spending almost $600 billion a year. There was an internal study that the Washington Post got hold of which suggested that the department could save $125 billion over five years just by cutting out some of the rubbish it was doing. If there is one single department in D.C. that would benefit from what Trump was talking about in his election campaign of draining the swamp or coming up with good deals or making sure things run, more, run better, it's the Department of Defense. And yet it is the one department he's throwing money at. It's mean, right. absolutely and, and, and bizarre.
2: Now he's going to throw a bunch of money at, at the Defense Department, and it's going to be at, in theory, at the expense of the state department well it's expensive
1: many departments but the state department is going to come in probably for i think 37 percent reduction is what uh was but that's a huge week. reduction yeah they, they spend about 50 billion dollars a year and a lot of that is on overseas aid of various descriptions now you can pass that into various things it could be let's help build democracy by having flowers and pretty uh, pretty bonnets you know uh, real real silly soft power stuff all the way through to what are we doing to help businesses get contracts abroad but that kind of soft power whether it's diplomacy, whether it's um, nice things for kids in school, or whether it's you know, proper institutional nation building, is a very important part of making sure there's peace around the world, of making sure that countries understand that America is not just there to bomb you or to ignore you. And taking that away uh, means that you're going to have a lot less to do Outside of the military, so if you then put that together with giving more money to the military, it's like okay, the more the more money you give to the military outside of an official war, the more your leaders are going to be thinking, oh, should we, we be should doing something? We should
2: be going to war, exactly. <laughs> right.
1: I'm not saying it's what he's planning, but it's right, just right. it often it can often lead to that. And you look through history, you see if you start ramping up the military, if you start spending money on anything, then you know the, the idea is oh, we should probably start using what we spent. on.
2: Well, you you have to give him credit; it certainly does. Scream America first. So, one of the things here, also to keep in mind, is the Republicans don't like increasing the budget, right?
1: That's why he's saying that we'll take the money from the State Department. We'll take it from the Environmental Protection Agency. You know, given what Betsy DeVos, the new Education Secretary, is, is talking about in terms of pairing back education, you could see money coming from there. So, what he's trying to do is saying we're balancing the budget, or at least not making it worse. And also, I mean. It sends a more worrying message as well. Right, you just get away from the fact that he may be taking money away from the pet projects of the the racist right. I refuse to call them the alt right. You know, so we don't like rivers and we don't and we don't like clean air and we don't like overseas aid. So let's get rid of that. Fine, but but you know what this also does is sends a very strong message that various other issues really are about, as you are saying, America first. So. The problem is, though, that he's really playing to his racist right base. He's not even playing to the Republican Party. Even in in, in his speech to Congress, he gave no real details about uh, tax cuts, about tax reform, about how to reform Reform Obamacare And you've already got members of Congress on the Republican side saying, we don't like the way you're you're going to defund the State Department. Uh, We don't think we necessarily agree with you on some of your tax reform plans. You want us to... Overhaul healthcare—that you've now told the governors of this of this country at a dinner this week—that uh, it's unbelievably complex. We could have told you it was unbelievably complex. Healthcare is unbelievably complex uh, thing to manage. So you know, I think the the worrying thing I think if you extend this to business is that you know businesses has, has looked at the election and think we've got tax cuts coming, we've got deregulation, this, that, and the other. It's all fantastic, but if you think back to Obama's first term when he also had control of or Democrats had control of the House and the Senate then you managed to get two or three things through in the first year or two. You know, Obamacare, a couple of things. Okay, they had the financial crisis to deal with. But nonetheless, it wasn't as if they got a great many things through. And they were roughly on the same page. Trump... And the Republicans in Congress are increasingly not on the same page, which means if you're out there in the world of business thinking, I'm going to get my tax cuts and I'm definitely going to get this, that and the other going in my favor, you may eventually get it. But the time frame is getting longer and longer, which means this great big boost to the stock market we've seen could start looking uh, rather precarious at some point soon.
2: Joining us to talk about the crazy action from Hong Kong, but live in New York, is Breaking View's associate editor, Una Galani. Welcome, Una.
3: Thanks, Jen. Nice to be here. Yeah,
2: we're excited that you're here in New York for the week. So why don't you tell us, what is going on with SoftBank? And It seems like they are everywhere.
3: Absolutely right. They are everywhere. This is a company that is totally in deal overdrive. I mean, covering them as a journalist, it really feels like we're playing whack-a-mole you know it's like every day it's another multi-billion dollar acquisition it's a fund management business it's a satellite operator it's an office space company it's a british chip designer i mean i think the key question we really want to try and ask ourselves is like why is all this activity happening now and i really think there are kind of two two reasons for this Masayoshi Son, who's like the founder and the CEO of, of SoftBank, I mean, he's basically building this hundred billion dollar tech fund. It's called the Vision Fund. So it's getting like, like Saudi Arabia is like plunking uh, forty five billion dollars into this. SoftBank's contributing another twenty five billion dollars. Yeah, that,
2: that's a huge amount of money, right? To, to go. Oh, I and mean, spend. it's yeah,
3: absolutely yeah. huge, right? And then you've got money coming from Apple and Larry Ellison, and and, and I think like. What we're seeing really is that SoftBank is actually like has a shopping list of deals that it wants to do, that it wants to put the funds money. To use to buy. Why is it doing a fund though? I
1: mean, it's it's been a buyer of assets since it was founded over thirty years ago. It owns Sprint, for example, most of Sprint here in the U.S. What's the reason behind doing a fund and getting outside money, and why can't it do it itself?
3: Well, SoftBank already has a problem with with its debt position. I mean, it already is quite highly leveraged. And Masayoshi Son, he always talks himself about having all these crazy ideas, and you know, a fund is a perfect way to kind of get a bunch of these investments off SoftBank's balance sheet and, and, you know, get other people to back his crazy ideas and just, you know, keep the deal machine flowing. So I think what we're really going to see at the moment is SoftBank is buying all this stuff. But when this fund closes in the next uh, couple of months, I think, what we'll see is that SoftBank might start offering up some of the investments that it's bought out into the fund. And that's going to start to change, like, the sort of the, the balance sheet picture that we have at SoftBank, which is pretty leveraged at the moment. So... $100
2: 100 billion dollars. I mean that that's all. it's it's hard to spend that kind of money. So he's kind of out there striking all these deals. I mean, do you think that these deals have any rhyme or reason or is he just kind of going out there and just being like, "Oh, there's a satellite company" or "Oh, there's an investment firm in the US" and 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 you know, here's Sprint and I mean, does it make any sense kind of is there a logical plan that you can surmise?
3: So SoftBank now sees itself as an investment holder, like an internet tech investment holding company. Um, And and Masayoshi-san, I think, aspires to be like the Warren Buffett of tech. But really, like, the way he describes tech is is very liberal. It can mean everything from green energy, solar power, um, chips, uh, AI, Internet of Things. The definition is so liberal and broad that it can kind of... WeWork
1: is office space okay it might be slightly <laughs> different to renting an office for a year but it's basically just an office space yeah it's, a real, it, it's so- a real estate
3: it's a real estate place I mean- There's nothing
1: special about that.
3: No, and, and actually, you're exactly right to highlight this point. Are there any like, is there any value in one company owning all of these different things? And I think what we're seeing in the market is that investors don't value that and they don't ascribe the full value to it. So, you know, SoftBank is a company with an $85 billion market capitalization. But the market is really only valuing... That's pretty much the the value of its stake in Alibaba. That's seventy five. It has a thirty percent stake in Chinese e commerce group Alibaba. It has that's worth seventy five billion dollars alone. Where does you know? So the market is giving no value to the thirty billion dollars it just spent on this British chip designer ARM or the Japanese telecom operations that it has, which are its core cash cow. Or the Sprint operation that it, the telco that it owns here in the U.S. So there is there is a big. It's actually trading at a sixty percent discount to the sum of its parts. I mean that's huge. That and, is huge, and that's getting worse. And, and is that because
1: of the debt that you were mentioning earlier?
3: Part of it is the debt, but I think genuinely people can't see the the synergy or the link between these investments that Masayoshi san can see. But I think he's looking years out into the future, and I. I you know I, I think we 're not really going to see that discount disappear anytime soon. Another reason I think that we 're seeing like you know all this big deal flow and activity coming out of Softbank at the moment is that this is a company that 's kind of amassed a, a really interesting little army of bankers like working inside the conglomerate and it's kind of you know they've got like some ex-Deutsche credit traders they've got like a former Morgan Stanley um, TMT banker and some of these guys love really big complex juicy deals and and, and Massa basically Massa's idea is he, he just says yes to everything I mean, that is
1: amazing. I, it's I, a match I, made in heaven, really. I'm, I'm a Morgan Stanley TNT banker kind of makes sense, right? Having someone who can go out and do deals in technology and media and telecoms perfectly fits what you want at MA M&A banker in-house, really. But, but I mean, you've got people like, was it Rajiv Mistra from Deutsche Bank, you said, was one of the guys who helped set up the the, the the Fortress Investments acquisition? Yeah. I mean, what on earth is a tech company doing with a credit trader?
3: And, and this guy led the Deutsche Bank's charge into CDOs, you know, so he... He's also been made the head of the Vision Fund, the $100 billion tech fund. So I think that, I mean, it's, I think you're right to ask, what is this person doing in that position? But I think the result is going to be is that the deals are going to get bigger, they're going to get more complex, um, because that's what these guys do. And, you know, they've got their dream job at the moment.
1: Yes, yeah, like, you know, they thought their world had come to an end in 2007 when the financial <laughs> markets crashed. Now it's like,
3: yay! Thank you, Mario.
1: we can now go out and do again. Yeah, deals and now again. they're
3: partying like it's 2007 or something on Wall yeah. Street. Like, there's so much stuff happening. Okay, on that note, thank you, Yuna, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, guys.
1: Okay, so for our final segment, we're going to look uh, at the wonderful world of Italian soccer. But it's not just AC Milan that's involved in this story. We've got the bad boy of Italian politics, Silvio Berlusconi, and a group of Chinese buyers. We don't particularly know who they are. They were brought in, as Lisa Yucca is about to tell us, one of our columnists from uh, Hong Kong is also in town this week. The Chinese struck a deal to buy AC Milan from Berlusconi and now look like they're about for the third time to postpone closing the deal. What's going on here, Lisa?
0: I mean, from what we can tell, you know, this group, which is very murky, I mean, this group of of Chinese buyers, I mean, is clearly having difficulties in getting the money across the border. I mean, we know that uh, uh, there is enormous appetite from Chinese buyers to buy uh, foreign assets. And last year, they actually bought... A record number of assets. I mean, the total was 105 billion. Um, but this year, there seems to be having difficulties because the regulators are scrutinizing these deals more closely. The,
1: the, is this the regulators in China or the in regulators China. abroad? Sorry, in
0: China. So Well, actually, both in China and abroad, because last year we did have, I mean, as I said, a record number of outbound acquisitions, but also we had a record number of deals that failed. A lot of them because of a regulatory pushback. I mean, 35 billion dollars of Chinese deals actually failed last year. And that compares with only $2 billion the year before.
1: Berlusconi appears to, as I think as we said at the beginning, appears to have managed to get the Chinese buyers here to score an own goal. Because as you say in your piece, the company AC Milan has $200 million or more of debt. And yet so far, because these buyers keep postponing the deal, that's getting covered. what's How's that working?
0: So the original agreement was for 7 140 million euros, so to to buy the club and also pay debt, which is 220 million euros. They initially agreed, I mean, the, the buyers initially agreed to make a down payment of 100 million, which is already sizable because we're talking more than 10% of the value of the whole deal. And, um, you know, when the deal was initially postponed in December, Berlusconi managed to, you know, force them to make another payment of 100 million. So we're already, you know, almost at, um, you know, one, one third of the value of the deal. And um, Reuters has reported that if another deadline is missed, they, you know, Berlusconi may require them to put down, you know, an, another down payment. So in a way, he has already extracted from this deal enough money to almost pay off the debt of AC Milan.
1: Of course, it wouldn't necessarily solve the problem, I think, as as one of our correspondents in in Europe was telling us. AC Milan is is just losing money all over the place, which happens with with a number of of European uh, football teams, it seems, when they go on spending sprees for players and what have you, and then don't have such luck on the field. But nonetheless I mean for the Chinese buyers I mean it's a it's a bit of a lesson in how not to do M&A isn't it I mean normally you you might have a break fee for a deal this has gone way beyond that. So
0: what you know senior bankers and private equity players I've spoken to have told me is that because of this execution risks that now we see with uh, deals involving a Chinese buyer the initial down payment is normally 10 percent of the value of the deal and this is up you know sometimes it's even twice what you know, used to be for similar deals, you know, in previous years. And there are also breakup fees. Uh, and, and this is, again, you know, reflecting the fact that, uh, you know, you're not certain uh, whether or not the money is coming through. And yeah. um, in the case of Berlusconi, it seems to have gone beyond what, you know, is, is kind of the norm now in, in, in these deals involving Chinese players. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you said, I mean, it's not necessarily going to solve all of uh, AC Milan's problems, because the company still is loss-making, as you were pointing out. But you know, it make it a more attractive asset for a future buy. I mean, there's no doubt that there are future buyers. I mean, Chinese are still very, very interested in sports assets. I mean, so, so Lisa, the, you know, this to me seems to be another deal
2: involving Chinese buyers that's kind of on shaky grounds. You know, earlier we had a deal for Dick Clark Productions. It was, it was Wanda. That looks like it's on the rocks. I mean, what does this say kind of broadly about what's going on with Chinese buyers in the M&A market? Are we going to see kind of a pulling back? Do they have the money? Like, what's going on here? So
0: certainly um, the expectations are for um, a pullback. The appetite, as I said, is still very high. However, the Chinese regulators have two problems at the moment. One, they are trying to avoid the massive, I mean, they're trying to sort of rein in the massive capital outflows that we're seeing. And m deal is, is part of that. So they don't want to see too much money flowing out of the country. And secondly, they are trying to sort of scrutinize these deals because not all deals are legitimate or have a strategic purpose. They don't want to see deals that really are only created to allow people to get money out of the country. And to be honest, I mean, if you look at this AC Milan deal, it has some red flags, you know. It can be, I mean, it could be classified into that category and maybe this is why, you know, they're having problems because this is like a vehicle which has been created specifically for the purpose of acquiring AC Milan. We don't know who the buyers are. They've never, their names have never been disclosed in full.
1: Well, Lisa, thanks for talking us through that. It's murky indeed. Please, once you're back in Hong Kong, do try and come back on the show again and do come and visit us again too. Thanks again.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Anthony. That's our show for this
2: week, and I'd like to thank my co host Anthony Curry, as well as our guests, Lisa Yuka and Yuna Galani. And I'd like to thank our producers, Bethel Hopde and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And do share your opinions about our show. Tune in next week for another edition of the show. Thank you for joining us.